Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 4th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to present part 34 of our commentary on the Gospel of John, and this is titled Intrinsic Character something that we just don't get. In our last presentation of this commentary on the Gospel of John, part 33, titled Light and Truth, we made the assertion that since Yahshua Christ was the light come into the world, as he himself had attested at John chapter 12, verse 46, then he must be that light which was first described as having been created by Yahweh in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. He is also recorded as having declared that I am the light of the world in John chapters 8 and 9. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that first light in Genesis is a type which represents what emanates from God as opposed to what lies in darkness, a type which forebode Yahshua Christ, the manifestation of God in the physical world. I did something unusual this week, something I hardly ever do. Before I started to write this presentation, I did a search on the internet asking, what is the light of Genesis chapter 1 verse 3? While I only checked the first few results, I was highly disappointed with the quality of three of the answers. Even if I did not expect the same conclusion which I had made here. The top result was from a website called Quora.com, written by someone claiming to be a 19-year-old physics student. This came up first on the Google search results, which is probably as far as many people asking that question may go. So this is certainly not the way to do any serious research but it is probably the way many people do what they think is research. He claimed that the light of that passage was all matter, and that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, God had created the rules that govern that matter. The first objection to this theory is this. Heaven, earth, and waters already existed. So matter existed before the declaration in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, which said, let there be light, and there was light. So there goes that whole theory out the window when you just look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And this is exemplary of why 19-year-olds should not be answering theological questions, or maybe even questions about physics, he claiming to be a physics student.
In truth, the rules that govern matter are coded directly into the structures of the matter itself. I have an example. It is not an accident that two hydrogen atoms naturally combine with one oxygen atom to create a molecule of water. A third hydrogen atom. A third hydrogen atom can only join the combination if it has lost its electron, thereby having a positive charge. And if it combines with the other three atoms, it creates a hydronium ion, which is acidic. Otherwise, it cannot combine at all, and water remains water. This is the intrinsic character of these basic elements of creation. So the rules of matter were not created separately from the matter itself. Every element has its rules of behavior already built into its nature as it was created. Another answer found at the top of the Google results was from creationdefense.org. However, they are not very good at defending creation. They said, this is a great question, and you are not alone in finding this matter troublesome. It is beyond our comprehension to understand how light could exist without the sun. I'll turn a flashlight on. A flashlight will work without the sun. So the answer to your question of what determined day and night before the sun is simple. We don't know. I would say that they must be Jews. In my opinion, it is quite arrogant to imagine that if something is beyond my comprehension, that I may say it is beyond our comprehension and we don't know. Just because I do not know something does not mean that somebody else cannot know it. The truth is that the light of Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 is indeed described in Scripture in the Gospel of John and in the revelation of Yahshua Christ. The light of Genesis is Christ himself. They evidently do not know that because they fail to believe what the scriptures are professing. As I said, they must be Jews. An article at the Christian Courier website did even worse. By fabricating a story, it said in part, that this initial light was temporary. For the sun was assigned the function of the greater light on the fourth day. Well, the sun was only the greater light compared to the moon and stars. So in essence, they are speculating that Yahweh God himself needed some temporary physical light in order to see, so that he could execute the next steps in his creation. That answer is pitiful. It's absolutely ludicrous. It's projecting human attributes and human limitations on God, in a way. But I did find an answer. 
in an article found on a rather Judaized Christian website called The Creation Club, written by one Dr. Jack Burton, that is very close to our assertions here. The author of that article understands that Christ is God and that this Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 light is associated with Christ, although he explains it a little differently as having emanated from Christ. However, it is so close to the truth, and it cites all of the same passages which we have cited for support that if all Christians understood Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 in that same manner, we would be pleased. So even denominational churches and pastors can understand some aspects of Scripture quite well. Of course, the Creation Club misses a lot of other truths about Scripture, and especially in relation to racial origins and other important matters so that I could never endorse the balance of materials found there. Their first fault is insisting that their contributors must believe in a Genesis creation week of six literal 24-hour days. I don't know how you get that when the sun and the moon weren't created until the fourth day. But without understanding the issue of race and scripture, and the relationship between origin and destiny, the author cannot properly understand why John wrote that the light shines in darkness and the darkness comprehends it not, while at the same time, he recorded Christ as having said, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Only a racial understanding of Scripture enables one to reconcile those two passages. As, I dig as a digression, just like the hydrogen and oxygen atoms in our example, other races can only dwell among us at all if a part of their inherent characteristics are suppressed. But when left to their own devices, they revert to their original beastly nature. So we take African and South American aboriginals out of their respective jungles and try to civilize them. And now... Wherever we have a majority population, whenever, wherever they have a majority population in our lands, they recreate Africa or Mexico or China or wherever it is that they had come from, regardless of what we share with them of our own civility or technology. They will ultimately follow their own intrinsic character, as their destiny is hopelessly tied to their origin. Going back to our discussion of this article on the light of Genesis, the author's conclusion is this. Jesus is the creator, the same one who not only was with God, but who was and is God himself at creation. 
He embodies the glory of God, for he is the great I am, the same as he who spoke with Moses from the burning bush. When God spoke the words, let there be light, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it was the voice of Jesus that was heard by the new creation when the light shone forth at his command, it was the light of the pre-incarnate incarnate lamb who had been slain before the foundation of the world that poured out. Now, almost all of that is very agreeable to me. Where I differ is that while Yahshua Christ certainly is God, he is the physical incarnation of God, and therefore the light did not come from him, but rather he is the light itself, Yahweh God representing himself as an element of his own creation, conceived as soon as the creation itself was conceived. Yahshua Christ did not send light into the world. He is the light come into the world. While he is here, we can walk in that light. Yahweh God does not need the physical body of a man to make a voice, something which the gospel accounts themselves frequently attest. As we see a voice come from heaven, and Christ is standing there, and the voice did not come from him. So before the predetermined time of the birth of Christ, he appeared to men as light, usually the light described as fire or burning, although on at least one occasion he was also the rock in the desert, as it was described by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, the light is called day, and the darkness, night. And in the Gospels and Epistles of the Apostles, good works are described as being done in the day, in the light, and evil works at night or in darkness. So Christ also told the people in John chapter 12, in verse 35, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light lest darkness come upon you. For he that walks in darkness knows not where he goes. Those who walk without Christ are wandering, lost in darkness, and they do not even have the understanding necessary to realize that they are in darkness because they are without the light of Christ. There's a, there's a business principle that if you are incompetent, you usually do not have the tools that you would need to recognize your own incompetence. If you're incompetent, how do you know it? Only someone more skilled in your field can really know it by observing how you work. If you don't have the light, you do not have the tools necessary to even understand that you're lost in darkness. The end justifies our interpretation of the beginning. Later, in the final chapters of the Revelation, we read in the description of the city of God, first in chapter 21, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, 
For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Then again in chapter 22. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So, in the Revelation, the essence of the light which was created in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 becomes clear, that it does indeed refer to the Lamb, to Yahshua Christ, as being the physical representation of Yahweh God in his creation, which is both the Word made flesh and the light come into the world, since his light was created before the sun, moon, and stars, it transcends them as it is greater than their light because it emanates directly from God rather than from some object which God created. As we had also elucidated in our last presentation, the ancient kings asserted for themselves to be the light, the light of the world, describing themselves by such epithets as the sun on earth. This is why the ancient, the king of ancient Babylon is called Lucifer or light bearer. That's Latin. In Greek, it's actually Eosphorus in the Septuagint, which means the same thing, light bearer. And he is called that in Isaiah chapter 14, where we read, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, the sun on earth, right? The sun rising that gives light. How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, meaning the people of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Only Yahweh should be king over his people. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Because no man other than Christ can possibly be the bearer of the true light. By these words, Yahweh was actually mocking a king who thought for himself to be something more than a man. At the root of many pagan notions is both remnants of truth and elements of humanism. And Christ, throughout his Gospels, refutes humanism in one way or another, having claimed all the glory of the pagan idols and false gods for himself. Men can't have that glory. Yahshua Christ is the true light, the light created by God from the beginning who preceded the sun and moon and stars and other physical aspects of his creation, and is therefore also the only one 
within the creation who may transcend those elements of creation under his own power. The light is part of his intrinsic character, even as the Apostle John had said in chapter 1 of his first epistle. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, as we commence with John chapter 13, writing of the imminent death and resurrection of Christ, John also uses other transcendental terms in his descriptions. Now, before the Feast of Passover, Yahshua, knowing that his hour had come, when he would cross over from this order to the Father, having loved those of his own who were in the order, to the end he loved them. The Greek word cosmos never meant to refer to a planet, which is unfortunately how the meaning of the word world is often misunderstood today. Rather, according to Liddell and Scott, cosmos is a noun meaning order, and generally of things, natural order, and of states, order, or government. The related verb, cosmeo, is primarily to order or arrange, generally to arrange or prepare, more specifically of governance to order or rule, and of women, women or armies, to adorn, equip, or dress. That's why we get the word cosmetics from cosmeo. There is a plethora of related words which had more specific uses. In Sparta, the word cosmos was used to refer to the arrangement of society under their constitution, which was their social order. And in Crete, it was used in the plural to refer to their local rulers, who were the principal maintainers of their society. In philosophy, the term had a wide array of uses in various contexts which are sometimes interpreted to refer to the entire world order or universe, and sometimes only to a portion or an aspect of that world order or universe. The word was even used in the plural to describe multiple orders or worlds, which were perceived either as coexistent or as existing in succession to one another. So we see that cosmos did not refer merely to the planet. In Old English, the word world described the age of man and not the planet, something which is attested in the American Heritage Dictionary Indo-European Roots Appendix. World, from Old English, we're old. W-E-O-R-O-L-D, from a Germanic compound, were all 
W-E-R-A-L-D, Life or Age of Man, were, meaning man, and ald, meaning age, the word which we get our word old from. Were, meaning man, is the word that we get words such as worth from. So in certain contexts, the word cosmos is best represented as society, where it describes the social order of men within the oikumene, another Greek word often translated as world, which literally means dwelling place. Oikos meaning house. The oikumene is the dwelling place. The extent of the oikumene is defined in scripture in Luke chapter 2, where it says that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world, or the oikumene, should be taxed. Of course, Caesar only had power to tax all the world within the Roman Empire, a small portion of the planet, which was evidently all the world, to both Caesar and to Luke. This again is apparent in Acts chapter 17, where the men of Corinth accuse certain disciples of Paul and Silas as these that have turned the world upside down referring to an even smaller portion of that same Roman world. So it is apparent that in Scripture, the cosmos is the social order of the oikumene, or dwelling place of the men who comprise that particular social order, which at that time was found in the Roman Empire and not the entire planet. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see that this world also transcends the planet, where long before Rome existed, we read, in reference to the children of Israel, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. So the world, was a particular society upon the earth and not the entire earth itself. The world of the apostles was the world which the seed of Abraham had already inherited among the nations in accordance with the promises that Yahweh had made to Abraham, which is evident in Romans chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and elsewhere in the letters of Paul. That is also the world of the Old Testament, as we explained in part 9 of this commentary, titled The World of Salvation. There we cited chapter 18 of the Wisdom of Solomon, where he described the world in a manner which equates it to the children of Israel alone. For in a long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of stones was the glory of the fathers graven, or 
inscribed. And thy majesty upon the diadem of his head, referring to the headband worn by the high priest, with the name of Yahweh inscribed upon it. There, Solomon poetically described the whole world as being represented by the long garment and in the four rows of stones, which is a reference to the breastplate of the high priest as it is described in Exodus chapter 28. On that breastplate, the four rows of stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and that is the whole world which Christ had also come to save. But here we have the word cosmos in a seemingly different context, where it seems to be describing the physical realm as opposed to the spiritual. And therefore, it was not sufficient for us to translate it as either world or society. So we left it merely as order, and may have more fully written natural order, one of the primary meanings of the term as it was defined by Liddell and Scott. Yahshua Christ would cross over from this natural order to the Father, having loved those of his own who were in the natural order. Not having loved everyone, nor whosoever, nor all men, but only those of his own. He defines those of his own, where he told his enemies that you believe not because you are not my sheep, and where he told his disciples, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He certainly could not have been described as having loved his enemies. As John informs us that he only loved those of his own. His enemies were destined to remain in darkness. Yet in chapter 2 of his first epistle, writing to some of those lost sheep, Peter had said, but you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light. No other race has that calling none whatsoever. The intrinsic character of those sheep enables them to come into that light. Even when they had sometimes walked in darkness. So Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, For you were once in darkness, but are now light in the prince. Walk as children of light. Yahweh God had explained in the words of the prophets that he loved only the children of Israel at the expense of all others. Christ, having come to do his will, came to fulfill the words of those same prophets. 
So we read in Isaiah chapter 43, where Yahweh maintains his love for the children of Israel, even in spite of the other races and nations. But now, thus saith Yahweh, that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, this being in the time of their captivity, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. I gave Egypt about the same time that Egypt was being overrun with niggers. Oh, I'm sorry, Nubians from Sudan or modern Sudan and from sub-Saharan Africa. Who did Yahweh give Egypt to but niggers? And Ethiopia and Sheba, and look at them today. Look at how dark and kinky-haired those people are today. Who did Yahweh give them to 2,700 years ago? Since thou was precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Yahweh had to give these powerful nations once white nations to the south up in order to fulfill his plan to preserve the children of Israel. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters, the children of Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. Keep not back, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yeah, I have made him. A reference right back to verse 1 where we saw, but now thus saith Yahweh God that created thee, O Jacob, and that formed thee, O Israel. While Yahweh created the entire Adamic race of men, he created the children of Israel for this particular purpose and preserves them at the expense of others. The purpose is in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6. He shall cause them that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That is the final objective of God. Later, in the aftermath of the captivities of Israel and Judah and, the, and upon the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, 
We read in Jeremiah chapter 31, At the same time, saith Yahweh, Will I be the God of all the families of the of Israel? <laughs> not of the earth, not of the planet, not of all the other races. Will I be the God of all the families of Israel? And they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, in reference to the people who were taken into captivity, the people which were left of the sword, those who weren't killed, found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, and that should be cross-referenced with the flight of the woman with the 12 stars to the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12. Yahweh, Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Yahweh had appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee, talking to the children of Israel, the people that Christ loved, those of his own in the order or in the natural order must be the same children of Israel that Yahweh announced that he loved in Jeremiah chapter 31, in Isaiah chapter 43. Later, in that same chapter of Jeremiah, a new covenant with the same people, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, is promised by God and is fulfilled in Christ. It is they alone whom he had come to gather to himself. Likewise, in the Revelation, addressing some of those same people whom Peter had referred to, or I should say, to whom Peter had referred, in part as a chosen race, we have the message to the church at Philadelphia. In other words, the people of the church at Philadelphia were in those same regions to which Peter had written his epistle. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Judeans and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Of course, Philadelphia means brotherly love, and therefore the name is a significant part of this message. <laughs> Those who say they are Judeans and are not, but do lie, are the Edomites and others who were wrongfully converted to Judaism over the two, cent over the two centuries before the birth of Christ. It is them whom he spoke of when he said, Ye are of your father the devil. And it is them to whom he said, Ye are not my sheep. So their rejection of him was part of their intrinsic character, as they are devils. Yahshua hated them and loved only those of his own. Now in verse 2 of John chapter 13. 
John begins his description of the famous so-called Last Supper, which was the final Passover meal that Christ had shared with his disciples. So it is evident that John chapters 13 through 19 describe events which took place over a period of less than two days, probably about a day and a quarter, and dinner taking place, and that's all I'm going to read is four words, and there's a comma, and dinner taking place. John only tells us that before the Feast of Passover, Yahshua knowing that his hour had come. But John does not tell us that this dinner was a Passover dinner. Yet in Matthew chapter 26, we read, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Likewise, in Mark chapter 14, we read, And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou or where do you wish, that we go and prepare that thou may eat the Passover? The account of these same events in Luke chapter 22 agrees that Christ had a Passover with his disciples the evening before the Passover of the Jews. In John chapter 19, an account of the very next day, we read, In verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold, your king. So the day after the apostles had their Passover meal with Christ, was the preparation day for the Passover of the Judeans. And John seems to have disclaimed it where he wrote in that same chapter, in chapter 19, verse 42, there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Likewise, referring to Passover feasts, which were mentioned earlier in his gospel, he seemed to make similar distinctions where he wrote, and the Jews' Passover was at hand in chapter 2, and in chapter 11, and the Jews' Passover was near at hand. And many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. The Passover in the law, was coincident with the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
as it is evident in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 16. As it is described in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is apparent that the apostles had truly believed that they were celebrating the Passover with Christ at the appropriate time. There is not a word about having an early Passover, and the apostles themselves had no real understanding that an early Passover would have even been necessary if they were to have one at all. But John distinguished the Jews' Passover as if to indicate that they may have indeed kept a different calendar than that which was kept by Christ and his apostles, which in this particular year had varied by only one day. Otherwise, there is no explanation for why the apostles had expected the Passover day a day earlier than that which was being celebrated in Jerusalem. The evening upon which they ate the Passover was the very next day described as the preparation day of the Jews. So the Jews' Passover would have begun the following evening. By then, Yahshua was being crucified. He was probably crucified early enough in the afternoon to have been crucified on the day of Yahweh's Passover. And late enough in the afternoon to satisfy the Jews in my opinion. It's Yahweh's Passover that counts. Continuing with verse 2, where we interrupted the narrative as dinner was taking place. With the false accuser already putting into the heart of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, that he would betray him. Now, Interestingly, almost every time in John that we see the word Iscariot describing Judas, the Codex Bese has caruatus, a word which refers to a nut, Simon the nut, <laughs> Judas the son of Simon the nut, <laughs> or Simon of nuts. So I think that's pretty funny. And it's probably accurate, but it's not true. It's Simon Iscariot. Earlier, we saw that Judas himself was called a false accuser or devil, as Christ himself had attested, where John had recorded in chapter 6 of his gospel. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. But here John says that the devil, or false accuser, had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. That does not necessarily describe a supernatural event. Rather, John may only be meaning to describe what had happened when Judas went to the chief priest, and the chief priest was also evidently an Edomite and a devil, 
Then again, since the chief priest accepted an opportunity offered by Judas, it was Judas who went to the chief priest because he was offering to betray Christ. So perhaps Judas initiated the act. We really don't know if there was a prior relationship between the men or prior communications. After Mariam had anointed the head and feet of Yahshua with the ointment of spikenard at a dinner at her home several days before this Passover meal, we read in Matthew chapter 26 something which John seems to allude to here, but which he did not record. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. So it is also possible that John was merely describing Judas's intrinsic character, the reason for his natural predisposition to do evil, since he was indeed a devil. Being a devil, an underlying disdain for Christ and his sheep, sheep, his sheep, would have been an intrinsic characteristic. In verse 27 of this chapter, John may be implying that same thing, where he says that after the morsel, then Satan entered into him, where perhaps he meant that at that particular point, Judas's satanic nature came to control his thoughts. As we read in the 37th Psalm, the wicked plot against the just and gnashes upon him with his teeth. Just like that third hydrogen atom in the hydronium ion, Judas could not cling to the group without a charge. The ion is not stable, but it is more stable than the hydrogen atom is by itself once it loses its only electron. That process is caused when certain acids are mixed with water. Judas's charge was mentioned by John in chapter 12, that he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. So Judas was only engaged with the group because he thought it would be profitable. But in the end, it was by Yahweh's permissive will that he was there, because Christ needed a betrayer, as it was prophesied in the Psalms, and that betrayer would not be one of his own whom he loved. So at the appointed time, Christ relied on Judas's intrinsic character to betray him, and therefore it must have been part of Judas's nature from the beginning. This may seem to be conjecture, but every man has an inherent nature, and often, contrary to that nature, Every man is conditioned by society to behave in a certain manner. But eventually, when confronted with an appropriate situation, it is a man's intrinsic character which will eventually surface and take control of his actions and determine his fate.
In this regard, Peter had written of Lot as he dwelt amongst the Sodomites. And in chapter 2 of his second epistle, where he wrote that Yahweh had delivered the just Lot, the just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Lot's good nature saved him from Sodom, but at the same time, for as long as he dwelt among them, his spirit was vexed by the decadence of the Sodomites. Continuing with John chapter 13 with verse 3, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands, and that he has come out from Yahweh, and to Yahweh he goes. Yahshua Christ did indeed have a full consciousness of everything which was about to happen to him, as that was his plan from the beginning. What John refers to here was described by Christ, where it is recorded in John chapter 10, that he said, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Then, a little further on, he elaborated, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And the other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Continuing with John's account of the Last Supper, and the conclusion of the statement which began in verse 2. He rises from dinner and lays aside his garments and taking a cloth, girds himself. In ancient times, men customarily worked in the nude. They worked naked because clothing was costly It was laborious to launder, and they did not want to soil or ruin their clothing by wearing it while they worked. For example, in a warning of tribulation in Mark chapter 13, Christ says, And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. The man working in the field would be nude, having laid his garment aside while he worked. But leaving in an unexpected hurry because of some impending danger, he may forget to take his garment as he flees. In another example, Peter is working on a boat fishing, as it is recorded in John chapter 21, when he learns that the resurrected Christ was calling him from the, from the shore. And we read, Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, 
and did cast himself into the sea. So, today people would be out fishing, and if they wanted to jump into the water, they would take their clothes off. But Peter was fishing with his clothes off because men worked while they were naked, so that they didn't soil their clothes. And then he puts his clothes on to jump into the water. I think that's pretty funny because it's totally the contrary to how we act today. But here at this Passover dinner, recorded in John 13, rather than work entirely naked, Christ had modestly girded himself with a cloth, probably something similar to a bath towel, as in the next verse we see that it must have been as large as a bath towel. Then he puts water into the basin, into the water basin. One manuscript, P66, has potanipter, or foot basin, rather than just nipter, which is simply a basin, usually for water. Then he puts water into the water basin and began to wash the feet of the students and to wipe them off with the cloth in which he was girt. So he tied a cloth around his waist to be modest and use that same cloth to wipe their feet. Today, many denominational churches mimic this act as a ritual, which is absolutely ridiculous. There is nothing explicitly spiritual about washing one another's feet. In the ancient world, where men traveled about on dusty roads and city streets, dusty, dirty city streets in sandals. Imagine walking through all the cow and horse dung left on those city streets. A problem which we had even in Europe and America until the end of the 19th century. Back then, foot washing was a necessary chore, which was often conducted before dinner, where men typically reclined on couches to eat, rather than sit with their feet hidden beneath tables. So Christ displays his humility in his willingness to perform this necessary task for his disciples as they sat to eat. This is evident as the meal continued after he had completed the task. It would be better for modern Christians to mimic Christ by doing necessary things for their brethren rather than play-acting ancient chores as modern rituals. These denominational churches, these people are just stuck on stupid. They think God needs temporary light in order to create the sun, moon, and stars. That's pretty stupid. I'm not forgiving. Verse 6 of John chapter 13. Then he comes to Simon Petrus, Simon Peter, who says to him, Prince, will you wash my feet? Yahshua replied and said to him, That which I do, you do not know right now, but you should understand after these things. Evidently, Yahshua had already washed the feet of at least some of the disciples who did not object to his kindness. But Peter, as we have often explained, 
and as we will explain, I think, at length when we get to the last chapter in John, or perhaps even when he denies Christ three times in one of the later chapters. But Peter, as we have often explained, was the most stubborn of the apostles and evidently could not stand the thought of his master serving him. This is in spite of the fact that only a short time before this, as they were passing through Jericho, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 20, Christ had told them that you know the princes of the nations exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So here Christ symbolically fulfills those very words, wishing to be Peter's servant, so that he could assume his rightful place as his master as an example to his apostles that they should one day do that same thing. While the meaning here is symbolic, ultimately Christ would serve all of Israel in his crucifixion and resurrection. Peter says to him, You may not wash my feet forever. Yahshua replied to him, If I do not wash you, you do not have a part with me. Along with Peter's stubborn nature, he was also often impetuous, so he made many statements that he would later regret. Here he immediately retracted his exclamation, as soon as Christ admonished him with the consequences of his actions. But this exchange is even more important than what is said on the surface. Later on, in Acts chapter 10, Peter receives a vision where he is told, where he is told, the things which Yahweh has cleansed, you do not deem profane. In the Old Testament prophets, Yahweh had promised to cleanse the children of Israel. For example, in Isaiah chapter 1, where Yahweh exhorts the children of Israel and says, Come now, and let us reason together, saith Yahweh. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, as white as wool. Then again, in Jeremiah chapter 33, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Only the children of Israel were cleansed by Christ, as only they had this promise in the prophets. So it is only they who have a part with Christ. Eventually, Peter realized that the children of Israel were being cleansed of their sins in the word of God, 
in the gospel as they departed from iniquity and turned to Christ. So he wrote in his first epistle, in chapter 3, speaking of the waters of the flood from which Noah and his family were saved, <clears throat> which also now a representation saves you, baptism, not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, but a demand of a good conscience for Yahweh through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ, who is walking in heaven at the right hand of Yahweh messengers and authorities and powers being made subject to him. For now, upon learning that he has no part with Christ unless he is cleansed by Christ, John writes, Simon Peter says to him, Prince, do not wash my feet only, but also the hands and the head. Peter would be stubborn, but not to the point where he is cut off from his Lord. The cleansing of the feet of the apostles served two purposes. First, Christ set an example for his disciples, that those who would be greatest among them should be servants to their brethren. Then, it was symbolic of the cleansing of Israel, which he was about to undergo on the cross, so that they may be reconciled to him. But it is the word of God and not any act of foot washing or baptism, which is the real agent of the cleansing, as he tells them later this same evening, as it is recorded in John chapter 15. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Thus we read here in verse 10. Yahshua says to him, He who is bathed does not have need except to wash the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, but not all. For he knew the man betraying him. For this reason he said that you are not all clean. The fact is that Judas Iscariot certainly betrayed Christ, but he broke no law. I cannot find a biblical law which Judas may have transgressed simply because he had alerted the high priest to the location of Yahshua that they may seize him. There is a statement by David which is recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 where he was being persecuted by Saul and we read, And there came of the children of Benjamin and Judah to hold to the hold, or, or the fortress, unto David. And David went out to meet them, and answered, and said unto them, If you become peaceably unto me to help me, mine heart shall be knit unto you. But if you become to betray me to mine enemies, seeing there is no wrong in mine hands, the God of our fathers look thereon and rebuke it. Yahweh God may indeed rebuke the act as it is unrighteous, but he provided no specific law against such an act. I have not found one. Of course, there is the law against false witness, but that is being spoken of trials. So I do not think that that applies here. We cannot 
read into Judas's mind the fact that Yahshua would not get a fair trial when he had no sin. So Judas broke no law. Why is he a devil? Judas was not accused of breaking any law up to chapter 6, where Christ said that he was a devil. And if Judas was not guilty of transgression of the law in his betrayal, why is he unclean whether or not he was washed? Earlier, John identified Judas as a thief, but here he relates the reason for which he is unclean to his act of betrayal, which did not constitute a direct transgression of the law. As a digression, it is strangely ironic that in the Talmud it says, he who delivers up an Israelite, where they really should have said Jew, either in his body or in his property, to the Gentile has no share in the world to come. Technically, Judas did not even violate this Talmudic law since he only delivered Christ to the authorities in the temple. But this is the law which the Jews still follow today. While they are all guilty of having delivered the true Israelite, Yahshua Christ, into the hands of the Gentile Romans. So they have condemned themselves by their own additions to the law. I think that's pretty ironic and actually pretty funny. In truth, Judas was a devil because he was evidently an Edomite. As we have before explained, the name Iscariot is from a Hebrew phrase meaning man of Kerioth. And Kerioth was a town in southern Judea, which was near the border of Edom. The rest of the disciples were from Galilee. The Edomites had moved into ancient Judah and much of Israel after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities of the Israelite population and had taken the land for themselves. They occupied it until they were forcibly converted to Judaism in the time of the Hasmoneans from about 125 B.C., until they themselves came to dominate Judea from the time of Herod, from about 40 B.C. We explain this in great detail in our commentary here on John chapter 6, in part 19, which, in reference to Judas, was titled, No Friend of the Devil. We read in John chapter 6, Yahshua replied to them, have I not chosen you twelve, yet one from among you is a devil? Now he spoke about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was going to betray him, being one of the twelve. Ostensibly, Judas was not a devil because he betrayed Christ. Rather, Judas had betrayed Christ because he was a devil, an Edomite, and no Israelite, a bastard. And for that reason, he was only acting in accordance with his own 
intrinsic character. Christ had chosen 12 apostles, and one of them was a devil, so that Christ would be betrayed, and the prophecies concerning his betrayal would be fulfilled. All of the historical circumstances made possible the fulfillment of the prophecies as they were written. So the intrinsic character of all who took part in that fulfillment was determined by God long before the events actually occurred. The intrinsic character of the hydrogen atom and the oxygen atom were determined by God so that we could have water and life as we know it. Judas being an Edomite, could not possibly be clean for the reason stated in Jeremiah chapter 2. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou said, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest playing the harlot. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed, how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Being an Edomite, Judas is a product of the sin of Esau, described by Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews, where in chapter 12, Paul warned his readers that they should be found watching closely, that not any are lacking from the favor of Yahweh, lest any root of bitterness springing up would trouble you, and by it many would be defiled, nor some fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one meal sold his own birthright. Esau sold his birthright because he had already despised it, having married Canaanite women, for which reason Paul had called him a fornicator. So all of his progeny were bastards, and for that he found no repentance, being unfit to carry the birthright. In Jeremiah's time, the men of Jerusalem were doing that same thing. So Yahweh said, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. Then how art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Judas, being a bastard, could not be clean under any circumstances. His intrinsic character was defiled. That led him to be a thief, and then it led him to betray Christ himself. Now Christ explains why he washed the feet of his disciples. As an example, for, that, for them to do that same thing as we had said earlier. Therefore, when he washed their feet and took his garments and reclined again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher 
and prince, or perhaps lord. And you speak well, for I am. Therefore, if I, the prince and the teacher, have washed your feet, you are also obliged to wash the feet of one another. This is true brotherly love, to be willing to make personal sacrifices for one another, and in that manner we follow Christ as he had sacrificed himself on our behalf. So here he also explains what he meant where he said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He continues now in the same admonishment. For I have given to you an example, in order that just as I have done for you, you also should do. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor an ambassador or apostle greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you would do them. We can only imagine our fate if we know these things, and we do not do them. This is the essence of Christian responsibility. And with much knowledge comes great responsibility. This accords with the parable of the talents and the three servants, which is found in Matthew chapter 25 and in Luke chapter 19, which Christ related only shortly before this time. The three servants were each given money according to their ability, and they knew what their master had expected of them as he departed from them. When he returned, Two servants returned to their master double what they were given, and they were rewarded accordingly. The third did nothing with what he was given, so that even what he had was taken from him, while he himself was cast away. As it is recorded in Matthew, Christ concluded the parable by saying, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Immediately thereafter, he related to them the parable of the sheep and the goats, which were separated as nations and on sight. Judas, being an Edomite, would certainly have been one of the goats. So in that respect, Judas Iscariot would have no excuse as he had also heard all these teachings which Christ had related. Yet now Christ speaks in reference to him. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Some manuscripts have. I know whom I have chosen. But in order that the scripture may be fulfilled, he eating my bread has raised his heel against me. Here Christ cites the 41st Psalm, which is messianic in the sense that it professes the promise that God will save a righteous man from his enemies and preserve his life against the curses of the wicked and the treacherous. And it says in part, Yeah, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, 
which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas Iscariot, such a man, an enemy, who pretended to be a friend while acting treacherously. But he was also one of those broken cisterns which were described in Jeremiah chapter 2, that same chapter, where the children of Israel had been committing that same sin which Esau had once committed. And Yahweh said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Being a broken cistern, Yahshua knew from the beginning that Judas would never follow nor even understand his word and would instead turn out to be his enemy, acting according to his own intrinsic character. For that specific reason, for that specific reason, he was chosen to be one of the twelve and he certainly acted reliably according to his nature. As a Greek poet, I believe it was Aeschylus once said, the bastard is forever the enemy to the true born. I don't remember the context. Now Christ informs his disciples as to why he is telling them these things. Because he is actually explaining to them exactly what is going to unfold over the next several hours. Right now I say to you, before that which is to happen, so that you may believe it when it happens that I am. If he tells them precisely what is going to happen, even if they do not understand it immediately, and it is clear that they did not, then once it does happen a short time later, they should be able to immediately reflect back on what he had told them and be further edified in the understanding that he is from God, the meaning of the statement which he is making where he said that I am. The words invoke Isaiah chapter 43 from verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, Christ and the apostles, that you may know me and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. In verse 20, we may see that he wants them to understand these things so that they would be his witnesses once they realize that he is that Savior which was spoken of in Isaiah. My voice is cracking. So he continues along that same line. Truly, truly, I say to you, he receiving the ones whom I should send receives me, and he receiving me receives he who has sent me. Later, after his resurrection, 
he gives them the commission to spread the gospel abroad. So they themselves become the ones whom I should send, with the exception of Judas, of whom he continues to speak. When we resume our commentary, we shall continue to see Judas act according to his own intrinsic character, and Christ testify of that character beforehand. But we shall also see that the rest of the disciples also had their own inherent traits, one of which was an intrinsic altruism that prevented them from recognizing for themselves that Judas was a devil. Just like hydrogen and oxygen atoms, we, as men, generally act according to how we were created, and our behavior is an essential part of our being. But if we are bastards, ultimately we cannot help but act contrary to the creation of God and contrary to God himself. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the eternal enemy of every Jew and nigger and spick and chank and all the other bastards. And good night.